From Oakland, California, I'm Michelle Zambrano, and this is We Are The Voices Radio. Voices Radio is pleased to present inspiring poetry readings and edifying conversations recorded this past fall and in spring and summer 2020. The episodes included in this series feature the voices of nationally prominent activists, scholars, poets, and more. We offer these episodes in the hope that they will contribute to our listeners' well-being and self-reflection and will heighten their awareness and move them to action. We Are the Voices is a Mellon Foundation higher education and scholarship in the humanities-funded project that forges an alliance between arts, literature, and public humanities. We are housed at Mills College in Oakland, California, which sits on the ancestral and unceded land of the Ohlone people. This land acknowledgement serves as just a starting point for accountability and for actions to support indigenous organizations and change movements. This episode is part of our Trans Studies speaker series hosted by Dr. Susan Stryker, the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership. Dr. Stryker is in conversation with acclaimed novelist and activist Robbie Alamadine, focusing on his 2021 novel, The Wrong End of the Telescope, which won starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and the Library Journal, and earned raves in The Guardian and the New York Times Book Review, among others. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Susan Stryker the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership at Mills College. And I'd like to welcome you to tonight's Mills College Trans Studies Speaker Series event, which is funded through the generosity of We Are the Voices, a Mellon Foundation higher learning initiative that brings together artists, writers, scholars, and community members, not just at Mills College, but in Oakland, uh, throughout the Bay Area and beyond. Tonight, I'll be in conversation with acclaimed novelist Rabi Alamadine, focusing on his latest work, The Wrong End of the Telescope. Published in 2021 by Grove Press, The Wrong End of the Telescope won starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Literary, uh, Library Journal, uh, and earned raves in The Guardian and The New York Times Book Review, among many others. Before introducing our, our guest, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking today from San Francisco, which is the ancestral home and unceded territory of the Ramatush band of the Ohlone people, and that Mills College similarly occupies the unceded territory of the Chochenyo Ohlone band, who are still very much part of society today, uh, and for whom this land continues to hold great significance. Given the tragic history of genocide, ethnic cleansing, land theft, and forced removal, as well as the ongoing practices of settler colonialism that exclude and diminish indigenous life. It is crucial that we who are settlers on the land cultivate our awareness um, of our participation in this violence and the ways in which we benefit from it. Consistent with Mill's vision and values regarding racial and gender justice, we accept responsibility and acknowledge um, and make visible the college's relationship to indigenous peoples. 
we offer this land acknowledgement as an affirmation of indigenous sovereignty and as a starting point for accountability and action and support of indigenous organizations and movements for transformative justice. <clears throat> a few announcements um, and then we'll get started. Please mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 13th, that's two weeks from yesterday, uh, for the final speaker series event whose title is Volatile Contexts, Identity, Technology, and Politics in a Moment of Danger, where I will be in conversation with whistleblower, technology expert, and trans activist Chelsea Manning. This talk show style program will explore questions ranging from national security and surveillance culture to artificial intelligence to critiques of the carceral complex and to trans rights here in the US and abroad. Chelsea will be on the Mills campus speaking before an in-person audience in Lisser Hall uh, and the event will also be live streamed. Like all other We Are The Voices events, you'll find that program as well as tonight's archived on the Mills College Performing Arts webpage where you registered for tonight's event. For audience members who prefer audio, We Are The Voices has a podcast of some of these events available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Simplecasts. We'll be uploading all new episodes in the weeks to come, so subscribe if you can. Uh, Joshua or Michelle uh, will put a, a link in the chat for you. I think Joshua is with us tonight. Uh, a reminder that you are free to put any questions or comments you have for our guest in the chat at any time. We will address as many as possible um, towards the end of the program. And that's it. All right, let us begin. I am really excited to introduce Robbie Alamedine. I have to confess that Robbie is one of my best friends, and I'm really thrilled that our working lives have converged here today. Thank you for joining us, Robbie. Uh, Robbie is the author of several novels and short story collections, including Cool Aids, The Perv, I the Divine, The Hakawati, An Unnecessary Woman, and The Angel of History. These books have been translated into more than 20 languages, and his writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Guardian, and many other publications. His numerous honors include the Lannan Fiction Award, the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature, the Harold Washington Literary Award, the Lambda Literary Award, not one but two Arab American Book Awards, the Pre Femina, the Rome Prize, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. A longtime San Francisco resident, uh, currently teaching as the Kaepernick Writer in Residence in the Creative Writing Program at the University of Virginia, Robbie likes to say that he most often divides his time wherever he lives between his bedroom and his living room. Um, welcome, Robbie. Thank you so, so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so, just to get us started tonight, um, um, it's kind of an air, airball question. I, I, I know that you are not a trans person, but that you have told me that you consider yourself trans adjacent. How, how so? <laughs> Actually, it's, it's, it's a long discussion, but primarily, um, let me do it this way. Uh, about a month ago, our mutual friend Justin was here in, in Charlottesville and, and we hung out together. Uh, and he, as you know, he's a teacher as well. And he was telling me this, that this is Justin Hall, the graphic novelist. Yes, yeah, that's okay. the one. Yeah, that's yeah. The one. 
that you know he's been learning a lot from his students, as have I, as you know we we usually do. Uh, that he realized that had he had the options that were available to him today, he wasn't sure he wouldn't be uh, on a sorry say different gender path, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating because you know. You, we both know Justin, and he looks like the you know kind the, of a Tom of Finland Jim Jim Bunny kind of guy, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but as he was saying that you know in school he was kind of different, and you know like all of us. And I I've always I mean I thought you know if he's he was that then then I definitely you know even more so. Uh, but what's always been interesting to me is of course most of the choices we make are ours and some are forced upon us and et cetera, et cetera. But that I've, I've never been, I've never considered myself trans because I really enjoy being a boy and I really enjoyed being a boy, but had I had option, I would have been more fluid, shall we say. All right. You know, it's like just moving from one to the next. Right. Um, well, well, so <clears throat> In addition to your trans adjacency, uh, my my main reason for um, for including our discussion tonight of your latest novel in a trans studies speakers series, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be by trans people; it can be about trans people, and that the central character in your novel, um, Mina Simpson, is a Lebanese American medical doctor and a lesbian trans woman, uh, and as I said in my my back cover blurb for the for the book one of the things i most appreciate about mina is that rather than making her transness the point of the story uh that she's simply a character who happens to be trans you know she is a a fully realized person uh there's more to her than her transness and that she's not treated as just some sort of empty cipher or, you know, straw figure that's being used to wage wage some kind of, you know, rhetorical battle in the contemporary culture wars about trans people. Uh, So I appreciated that. Um, You know, I I also noted, though, that there's plenty of non-rhetorical warfare going on in the wrong end of the telescope. You know, it's set on the Isle of Lesbos uh, in the midst of the refugee crisis caused by the war in Syria. There are flashbacks to the Lebanese um, civil war and the is- Israeli invasion um, that were a backdrop to Mina's youth. And, you know, also I, I know to your own. Um, I understand the main focus of the novel to be Mina's feelings about uh of of ineffectualness after she accepts an invitation from a colleague who runs an NGO to provide medical aid to displaced people in the infamous Moria refugee camp uh, on on Lesbos. She's overwhelmed by recognizing the huge gulf between the sort of enormity of the traumas and tragedies she encounters uh, and what she is able to do as a single individual, you know, which, you know, I know is a feeling that many of us share when we confront the world that we find ourselves living in these days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do want to spend a lot of time talking about the larger themes in the novel. But, you know, first, given that this is the Trans Study Speaker Series, it's like what led you to conceive of Mina as the primary viewpoint character for this far-flung, wide-ranging novel? Well, I mean, so many things. 
uh, as you you know, a lot of my friends are trans, so it's 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 up all the time. Uh, but let's go back to you know what you started with, which is that you know you were happy that uh, how Nina was handled and how her transness was not the point of the story. Uh, let me just say it uh, clearly that the reason that her transness is not the point of the story is because it would have been a bad story. You know, um, if I have a gay character and it's about the character, you know, all this is about being gay and being gay is the problem. And, you know, uh, it's like the first time one does it, that might be a good story, but afterward it becomes, you know, hackneyed. You'd have to come with a new way. But the more interesting thing for me is that if, you know, like a, even a coming out story or a trans story, it's just the story is one of many, 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 many stories. Each of us have many, many, many stories. And to concentrate on one and say, this is the story uh, makes for bad novels. Uh, so it's about, you know, Mina is a fully full character. I see her in my head. I, you know, I actually talk to her every now and then. Uh, so to just reduce her to her transness would have been not just a disservice; it would have been bad writing. Um, but it was also important that she was trans uh, for many reasons. I was in in the book. I was looking a lot at as to the theme of uh, loss uh, and uh, sort of, shall we say, resurrection or reinventing oneself uh, that refugees have to go through and then, you know, what immigrants have to go through. And it was interesting for me to look at Mina the same way as, you know, what she had to give up uh, uh, when, when she transitioned and did she have to give up? Was it willing or unwilling? And the losses that one has to deal with, uh, I thought that was really important. And it sort of became like a tuning fork to, to hear all the refugee stories through her eyes. But the other thing that was important, and not, I've talked about it before, is that it, I didn't choose, I did not consciously choose Mina to be the narrator. I had tried uh, telling the story in many, many different forms, as essays in, 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 I mean, I think you, rem you remember most of my <laughs> meltdowns as to why I wasn't able to tell these stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, primarily I wanted to write about what happened in Lesbos when I went there. And you know what happened with all the refugees that I talked to and I interviewed, and I wasn't able to. And I was writing this other story, short story, and Mina was a character in that story, and she had nothing to do with the book, nothing whatsoever. Uh, and I wasn't able to do the book. I wasn't able to do the book. And then all of a sudden, Mina went from this story to start narrating the book. And when that happened, everything fell into place. A lot of the reasons that I say, oh, Nina, Nina had to be trans or whatever, were actually post facto because she just came into the novel. And once she did, everything worked. You know, I, I had a question 
prepared for the the later part of the the conversation, but it, it's re related to this. I, I wanted to hear something from you about the um, the. The, the, what I was thinking of, like the structure of address in the novel, it's like that you have Mina writing to someone, to you, writing to, it's like, and so like, do you want to, could you say something about like how you, you chose to, to structure the novel? It's like, it's like an exchange between Mina and the writer that she is writing to. Yes. Who is not necessarily me. I mean, I'm not admitting. Not necessarily, that. but there's, there's resemblances there I, that I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, let's start with, I had been working with refugees for a long time, basically since the Syrian crisis. So by the time the Lesbos thing happened, uh, uh, I, I had been working for like four years and a couple of my friends, you, you know, them went to Lesbos to help and I decided I could go. So I go to Lesbos and I was, to lack of a better word, traumatized. That even after all this time, Lesbos was a special experience. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, you know, so I spent a lot of time, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened, what caused the quote unquote, I call it a nervous breakdown, but I'm being nice. Uh, and I I couldn't, and I tried to write about it, and I couldn't, and I tried even to write simple essays about refugees, and I couldn't. And part of the problem is what I call the the distance. I was unable to distance myself from uh, the subject matter. I couldn't see it clearly. Uh, when I was in Lesbos, the difference between what happened to me in Lesbos and what happened in, in Lebanon is in, in Lebanon, you know, I was a Lebanese interviewing Syrians, you know, we we're very close to each other. And uh, I was a writer going around, you know, I had sort of a, a form of protection, I would say, being a writer as separate. So I could hear the stories. In Lesbos, I was just a single person. And there were these, you know, the refugees, and then there were the Western volunteers, and I fell between the two, and I kept, uh, I lost my identity, basically. Uh, so I wasn't able to write about it. And it was only when I came to uh, see Mina as sort of the savior, where she comes in and saves the novel, it was that she is able to, she was able to have the same experiences that I did, but she is trained to go through with it. So I will say this, that it's it's in some ways important that uh, Mina was trans, but it's really important that she's a surgeon who's able to, you know, experience all that, but then put things aside and go to work. So Mina comes in, she's able to go through a lot of what I did, but she wasn't, she wouldn't have gone through a lot of, she wouldn't have gone through some of the things that I did. And I wanted to talk about what happens to someone who gets lost in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, so that there had to be a character who was similar to me. And then it all of a sudden it becomes sort of this dialogue between the two. And I was, I was really interested in that. Now, again, a lot of the explanations are post facto. 
when I'm writing, it's just about, oh, you know, this is working or this is not working. Uh, well, you know, I, I thought that the, 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 the structure of the novel that way, the way that Mina addresses the writer and then the way the writer becomes a, a character uh, uh -huh. was just one, part, one of the most, form, the most formally innovative part of the book. And I really, I, I really appreciated that. Um, but sort of, again, under the circumstances, since this is the trans studies speaker series, I wanted to ask a couple more trans questions before we Please. heard you, heard you re read um, from some of the, some of your work uh, that, you know, I, I appreciated that Mina was not the only trans character in mm -hmm. the book. Um, you know, so, so often the trans character shows up as, you know, some kind of magical figure who like changes everybody's life yeah. and then goes away like Mary Poppins at the end. And, you know, everybody's, you know, transformed and, you know, blah, blah. But you had relationships between a few different trans characters who were like very different. Um, from one another, you know, that Mina is a somewhat frumpy, middle-aged professional woman in a long settled primary relationship with a cis lesbian woman named Francine. But her friend, Emma, uh, who was the person who invited Mina to Lesbos is another trans medical doctor, you know, like two trans medical doctors in the same novel. Um, as you have Mina say in Wrong End of the Telescope, speaking to the writer character she says i'm not sure you would like emma francine that her partner certainly doesn't and you two tend to like and hate the same things i met emma in 2005 at a conference on transgender health in malmo uh, when she came up after my presentation her hair was short and black then 60s style she wore thick makeup dark lipstick that would make a cherry envious a tight dress that highlighted her slim figure and a long cardigan that highlighted the dress. Francine thought Emma was too hetero, uh, but that may have been because Emma ignored her, a faux pas that she didn't care to correct even after I introduced them. Emma and I were able to be friends because the two of them were good at ignoring each other. So what was your motivation there as a writer and storyteller for, you know, crafting the Emma-Mina relationship that way and for introducing Emma as a character. Uh, it, it's, it, I mean, it's extreme. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. It was, Emma is extremely important and it's fascinating to me that the, the book has been really well received and well critiqued and all that. But if there was any criticism, a number of people mentioned Emma, they hated Emma. Uh, and I'm fascinated by that because uh, I love Emma. Uh, and Emma is a nurse. Uh, she's she's not a physician. Uh, All right. Yeah. But it's, it's it's I mean again it's the same. But uh, I introduced Emma for many reasons. Primarily because if it has been I've been doing I've been writing for a long time. It's been my experience that uh, you know if there is one character that is out of the dominant culture, which most of, not most, all of my characters are, then when people read it, read it, they, for whatever reason, the assumption is that because this character is this way, then all those belonging to that group are that way. Uh, as an example, uh, you know, like I, my second novel was about a Lebanese woman who can't go past her first chapter. Uh, and the, she does many, many things. But one of the chapters was about a truly traumatic event when she was 16. 
So it, it became this whole thing where everybody assumed that she couldn't go past the first chapter because of that traumatic event that became, it's like everything begins to be defined by that. Then if you do a book about a uh, Lebanese gay man who does something lovely or bad, the assumption is that he they do it because he's a Lebanese gay man, that, that being a, of a different subgroup or a different identity is what defines almost everything we do. And it then becomes to the all the class. So when I was writing Nina, whom I loved, it was important for me that she was in a loving relationship uh, with her brother, with, you know, Francine, with that she is loved. But I always saw her as, shall we say, you know, midlife, uh, settled. And I kept thinking, you know, she's not very sexual. And I had this thing in my head that a lot of readers might assume that just because you're trans, you're not that sexual. Or maybe so, that you're hypersexual with the oh, yeah. side of that coin, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Emma comes in to provide yeah. the other the other side. And I love this this I again again I, I had a lot of fun with Emma and I, I needed her uh, to sort of to balance, you know, it's like uh yeah, to balance things out. And and she's very sexual, she's interested in, in many things and uh Love is not necessarily one of those. Uh, but yes, it's, she's, she provides sort of the contrast that not everything, you know, that, that not everything that Mina does is because she is trans. That, you know, you could be trans in many, many, many different forms and, of course, behaviors, which we all know. But it's fascinating how the dominant culture will try to, you know, separate that this is because you're this. Um, I just got a message that says showing some love for Emma in the chat. So you've got got fans who like like Emma. Oh, well, I want to I want to I want to bring up another trans character in your novel, which I yes. think um, you know. But both um, well, I appreciated what you say about Mina being from Lebanon, but long you know settled in the U.S. and to become um, a U.S. citizen, and so she's a kind of in-between character, both like from the Mediterranean and now from the U.S. And Emma certainly uh, is an outsider to Lesbos, who you know kind of helicopters in to deal with the refugee crisis. But there's another character that is uh, a, a a a lesbian from Lesbos person. Um, not lesbian in the sense of that's their identity, their sexual identity, but that that's where they're from. Um, and, you know, it, I think it offers the opportunity to talk about transness as something that is not just internally different, but it's like different because of the different geopolitical and cultural locations mm -hmm. of people. Um, and, you know, how it is that this one character represents yet a different kind of, of difference. And, you know, just to, to read um, a couple of paragraphs of this, uh, describing this character when you introduce them, um, you write, um, there was an unexpected sight in this rustic vista. 
um, a cross-dressing villager sitting leg over leg on a wooden chair underneath the plane tree with a cigarette that glowed into sudden life. An antique bronze kettle of coffee, its top covered with a saucer, waited on the stone wall next to the chair. A calico lay across the cross-dresser's lap, purring loudly, offering her elongated, <clears throat> elongated neck for petting. We are everywhere, I thought. I wondered briefly how long I would have to withhold gendering. What clue would be offered? The red dress was much too short for cold weather, particularly without nylons or socks. Hairy legs bared. A worn charcoal duffel coat was shorter than the dress. No wig. Short, misbehaving white hair. No makeup. He likely identified as a man, a middle-aged guy in a red dress and sensible black pumps. He would later confirm my assumption. Uh, he had a smile on his face as he bent forward and whispered to the cat, definitely a morning person. An old Greek widow, stereotypical morning black, including headscarf, cane, and wicker basket, approached him, chatting for a minute. She petted the cat and continued towards the harbor. So this turns out to be somebody named Nikolaus. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us some about the origins of that character and the kind of work you were trying to do in the novel by introducing him and why him? Well, uh, the character is based on a real person uh, in the island, on, in the little village of Scala Skimineas. Uh, but it it is, somewhat based. The, that character was actually identified as female, um, whereas I chose to a, a different set. It's the privilege of fiction, shall we say. Uh, and the sad news is that that character, if I remember correctly, was uh, either killed or murdered um, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, no, I had met, um, actually I met not too long ago, a, a, someone who called themselves a double lesbian, a, a sexual orientation lesbian uh, from Lesbos. So a lesbian lesbian uh, named Sally um, uh, Hajime Mitrio, um, who's a filmmaker. And she'd actually made a film about that person. And Sally had told me that that person actually used the pronouns he, him about themselves really? but you know dressed dressed femininely um and yeah they were a very well-known person mm -hmm. on the island kind of a larger than life character um uh who had quite a lot of local notoriety um and that because their house became kind of a party house that people would come to and think like let's go you know visit uh, nikolaus I, I forget what their their actual name was that yeah they had kind of run afoul of the local authorities and were arrested and that were they actually escaped from jail and then was hit by a truck when they were walking along okay. the highway at night yes. trying trying to go home so you know, sort of tragic accident as a result of what happens when trans people draw attention to themselves and run afoul of the way that society is organized against them. So, so was this just local color in the novel or were you well, using and, and the character to, to, to do some work? It was using the character to do some work, but the character for me, again, was based on just the image. I remember, you know, I was jet lagged. I wake up early. I go out into the square and that character was the only thing in the square. I mean, you know, he, he, 
and it's striking it is striking to see uh in this in the square he was wearing this short red dress that was just sensible mm-hmm. uh and it stuck with me so i introduced him to in in the novel but i was interested in in many things again uh the things i mean that character was the uh repository of all the stories about the greek refugees that came from uh, turkey and and i was again interested in that uh but i i tried again maybe it's because i was in a mood or whatever i'm trying to think there were i introduced different characters if you ask me my favorite is the trans character from syria the refugee who is actually a real person mm-hmm. um that she came from this little village in syria uh i mean we are talking you know really small village uh, and it stunned me that you know somebody could be trans in a village and not only did she was she okay she uh the people in the village didn't mind and then the thing that's truly shook me is that when the daesh or the islamic militias came along they left her alone but they did not leave her boyfriend alone uh because again he was gay to them whereas she was trans so it was good. and i i in my mind i loved that story and i loved you know again the whole idea of losses and and reinventing and how we resurrect ourselves because i again i remember i was stunned like how do you find hormones and it was just you know her look was just like pregnancy pills of course <laughs> you know you you make do but this is what i mean this is why there's so many stories of you know life goes this way you make do well so i just want to say thank you for like having such complicated fully developed trans characters woven woven through the fabric of this novel which is not you know explicitly about transness it's like i loved how they were just part of the world that you were that you were you're showing but um i think it's time for us to to hear some reading it's like um um i would love to hear you read some passages and tell us what's set them up for us tell us what's going on and then just hear you hear you read it because i think your your prose is so beautiful i mean one of the things that i love is that it feels to me like sort of you know work a day utilitarian prose and then all of a sudden there'll be this lush beautiful poetic image i just love the way that you you write in different registers so i'm i'm very excited to hear you hear you read read to us so i'm ready ready for story time Nancy Robbie <laughs> I was going to say I wish I was excited but uh I I should announce that I'm a, a little ill and I'm high on uh, nasal decongestants and so I don't sound like my usual fabulous self a little less fabulous but still fabulous still fabulous right? still fabulous <laughs> okay uh this is from a section called the little rascals go to camp 
there, there's no setup needed. The main narrator, Mina, is is in the car. I dreamt of my mother, of my father, of sitting before them as an adult, all of us underwater in the Mediterranean, something like that, everything fleeting and hollow. I heard strange knocking noises as if I were in an aquarium with some child knocking on the glass, my head echoing back. And indeed, it was a child who woke me, or rather five of them. Four boys and little girl, all in clothes that had seen better days if they'd ever had a good one. The kids stepped back from the car as soon as I turned, all of them giggling. I'd slept for hours, my head leaning against the rear window. I had a text from Emma explaining that she thought it would be best to let me sleep, that I should come to camp when I woke up and call her. I stretched my arms, used the car's roof as support, which made the children laugh louder. I got out of the car, asking them in Arabic if there was something wrong or if they found me generally amusing. The eldest boy, no more than 11, planned and clad in a multi-dawn sweater, explained that I was snoring loudly. He could hear my snoring through the car window, he said but not his friend and lieutenant pointing to a younger boy because his ears were filthy. His ears had so much dirt, the eldest boy said, that you could, you could grow wheat in them and make bread. The other boy, whose ears did not seem any dirtier than the rest, was not amused. It had drained sloppily while I slept, and all the cars parked along the, the road were still dripping. Shreds of frayed clouds congealed into a dark, menacing mass, covering the light with thickets of moisture. The shadows around me grew fainter. The children asked me where I was from, then introduced themselves. The leader, his lieutenant, and another boy were from the Aleppo area. The fourth boy was all the way from Pakistan and didn't speak Arabic, but he was fun nonetheless. And the blonde girl, clad in strident colors, was from Iraq and didn't say much because she was shy, but she had to be in the club because the leader's mother could beat him up if he didn't allow girls. And what did their club do? Well, it was formed only that morning, so their, their objectives were not entirely clear yet, but the main reason for the club's existence was mischief-making. As in his mother told him to take his friends and make trouble for other people, not her, if he knew what was best for him, and of course he knew. Could they take me into the camp to meet my friend? Of course they could. And not only that, they would explain things to me since I was obviously new, but it was going to cost me. No, not money, but a whole chocolate bar or two since there were five of them. And of course they knew I didn't have chocolate on me. I didn't even have a purse, but I could buy candy at one of the cantinas over there. The boy said, the big one facing the gate had the best chocolate. The owners had given them two bars that morning for picking up all the paper cups and putting them in a garbage bag. Had I ever had coffee, have, had I ever had coffee out of a paper cup? And it was hours ago since they had chocolate and there were five and it was only two bars and they could tell me all kinds of things about Korea. The camp to my right, not the city in the Lord of the Rings, but they could explain the movie to me if I wanted so I, could, I should buy them chocolate. Of course I should. 
Yeah, to to me, that's just such a great description of like kids trying to make their own fun, um, you know. And it uh, actually reminded me of scenes in uh, John Steinbeck and uh, Grapes of Wrath when you know you're you're in the refugee camps with the you know the the Okies out in the the Central Valley. You know, some very similar scenes with with kids there. What is it about that scene that makes it um, something that you like to share when you're doing when you're doing readings for audiences? Well, I mean, I, I like the scene because it's, it's easy, it, it sets the scene, but it also distracts from what's coming next, which is, you know, somewhat more tragic. Uh, so um, we, 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 well, 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 now that we've had our um, amuse-bouche, um, do you, do you um, want to go straight into the, the more emotionally difficult material sure, in the next section? Sure. Or, or do we want to linger for a little bit longer? You tell me. Um, yeah. I'll look and see if there's anybody who's put, um, um, you know, someone just says, love, love, thank you for that reading. Um, but without, that's from Kristen. Hi, Kristen. Um, Kirsten, sorry, blah, can't read my own, can't read the small print in with my, my middle-aged eyes. Um, but um, yeah, so we're, we're not seeing anything other than like fangirling in the chat right now. So if you want to uh, to go ahead with the um, with the the, the next um, the the next passage, that would be great. Okay, but can I ask Michael? Could you do fangirl again? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, dream house maintenance. This section is called dream house maintenance. Your father built the house of his dreams in his home village in the mountains of Lebanon, not too far from the house he grew up in, the one his father had built. Before he broke ground, your father, though not very religious, did what every Druze man should when building or buying something new. He visited one of the Druze elders, a man in his late 80s who lived in a tiny village that was difficult to reach, hidden in a verdant valley encircled by high mountains. Your father asked the elder to bless his new home, which the man did by writing a little prayer on a piece of paper, which he folded and put in a small envelope that was essentially another folded piece of cardstock paper, a Lebanese origami. Your father placed that blessing, no bigger than a child's finger, between the first of two stones laid down for the house. The house of dreams was finished in 1974. And what a house it was. Overlooking the city of Beirut, it was sleek and modern, distinct and sui generis. Melding into the hills around it, but unlike any other building in the area. In the middle of the house was the piece de resistance, a glassed-in room with an open-air top in which grew an old olive tree. But then your father covered the top with chicken wire and began to fill the room with birds, all kinds of birds. Canaries at first for the song, goldfinches to sing back, then the local larks, finches, warblers, and bee-eaters. When he included the first weavers, your father had to fill the room with dried grass 
and dead plants so that those yellow things with feathers could build their intricate nests. He brought in nightingales, but they didn't sing. From the Netherlands, he purchased imported birds of paradise with ridiculously long tails. The aviary became his passion. Everybody loved it, even you, cynical you. But were you cynical then? You have often written that 1974, when you were 14, a year, a year before the civil war started in Lebanon, was the single happiest year of your life. You found out that you could pass for normal for short bursts of time, after which you had a good hiding place, your bedroom with a never-ending bookshelf in the new house. You would be able to make it. Not a happy existence, but still survival. Existence in and of itself was an accomplishment. But violence descended, only it wasn't directed at you personally as you had expected. The Lebanese civil war erupted and you were bundled up and sent out of the country for safekeeping, the young immigrant. The house remained though. Throughout the early stages of the war, nothing touched it. Pressed and flattened between the two first two stones, that tiny paper prayer worked its magic. Every time you visited during those first few years, first few years of the war, you did, and you did that quite a bit, you noticed that the house stood proud, not a scratch. Every house in the village had a pointless array of bullet holes, but not your father's. A missile would fall in the orchard, a grenade would explode on the main road, but the birds in your father's house kept singing. A miracle, if ever there was one. Christian militias, Druze or Muslim ones, they couldn't harm your father's house. The Syrian army, Palestinian fighters, the house existed beyond the ravenous cruelty of the war and its mundanity. Bullets, rocket-propelled grenades, missiles, they all bypassed it, swerved and detoured. The wonder lasted for seven glorious years, but then the Israelis invaded. Would the Israelis understand paper prayers? Could the talisman protect against the evil eye of an invading army? Was Druze Juju translatable into Hebrew? A most definite yes, it seemed. Phylacteries were as common among Jews as they were among the Druze. There were a couple of close, close calls. When the tanks arrived on the hill above your father's house, a general's megaphone voice warned the village not to harbor any terrorists. The latter defined as anyone who was not welcoming the neighborly Israeli invasion with enough cheer. 15,000 Lebanese were killed within the first two weeks of the Israeli invasion, which obviously meant they were all uncheerful terrorists. If the villagers did not want to be shocked and awed by having their homes bombed into oblivion, they should raise a white flag on the roof to indicate that there were no unfriendly terrorists in the house. Your mother stripped all the linens off the beds and hung the white sheets on the roof's laundry lines. She worried that she, she worried that would not be enough. For two days, while the tanks loomed above her home, your mother ran back and forth along the laundry lines, shaking the sheets to make sure that they were seen from above. Possessed by Lisa, the spirit of madness and frenzy, your mother set herself up between the folds of each sheet and swayed her arms back and forth, 
then move to the next sheet and the next for 48 hours in a row. The prayer blessing worked on the Israelis with a little help from your mother acting like a Halloween ghost on meth, not a scrape, not a blemish on the house. A week after your mother shook the sheets, a young Israeli, a young Israeli soldier knocked on the large mahogany door. Your parents saw a, sh a shy, scrawny, mild-mannered boy. He looked 14 at best, your mother told you, his glasses too big for his face. She wanted to drag him to your room, order him to get out of that idiotic uniform, grab a bath, pick something normal to wear from your, from your closet, and then she would feed him. The soldier, speaking fluid Levantine Arabic, apologized profusely for disturbing them, so much so that your parents began to feel guilty for appearing intimidated, intimidating to the poor boy. He had heard the birds, he told them, all the way down the street. He followed the sounds of the house, just as Melchiades, the gypsy in 100 years of solitude, found his way to Macondo by following the song of the birds. Beautiful singing, some trills the boy knew, but some he could not identify. He was going to study ornithology, you see. He was obsessed with birds, like his own father was. He hadn't been sure where the bird song was coming from until that day, when he finally had a break. He was not supposed to wander on his own, he said, but the siren song called to him. He begged for permission to see the birds, if only for a moment. Of course, your parents let him in. Your father may have despised the Israelis, but a young man who loved birds couldn't be a terrible person. The young man was stunned when he saw the glassed-in room, sunlight inside the house, the outdoors, indoors, and birds, a profusion of birds. He had a look of such longing that your father forgave his trespasses, almost his country's as well, but not quite. The coffee came out, the entire hospitality accoutrements, almonds, candies, chocolate. Even in the middle of the war, one must be prepared for guests. When your mother complimented the soldier on his Arabic, he explained that his mother was Druze and his father was Jewish. He spoke Arabic with his mother's family and Hebrew with his father's. He had problems, he said, answering your mother's questions. He was Jewish, but not technically, since his mother wasn't. And he wasn't Druze because his father wasn't. He felt homeless, he said, which, of course, elicited host hostly homilies from your parents. Their home was his home. He would always be welcome, the usual stuff. He asked if he could visit again when the Israeli army withdrew. On the way back was how he phrased it. Surely this invasion would not last long. Of course, your parents assured him, if they were still around, if he remembered, then his visit would be most welcome. You didn't know whether he remembered, but luckily your family was no longer around. The Israelis went insane, bombing Beirut incessantly. Even though the house wasn't in danger, your family decided to pack as much as they could and left for the safety of Damascus. Your parents left as soon as the Americans got involved. The Israelis forced the Lebanese parliament to elect the head of the Falange as president, and he was assassinated soon after. The Israeli army surrounded the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, and the Falanges massacred thousands of women and children as Ariel Sharon smoked his hookah and cheered from the sidelines. 
Oh, the hand-wringing of the UN. Israel decided it would occupy only the south of Lebanon. The civil war flared up again. The American Marines got involved in the war. Unfortunately for your family, Americans don't understand paper prayers. Drew's juju would not translate to English. Blessings were not America's forte. One morning, for reasons no one could fathom, the battleship New Jersey, cruising in the Mediterranean, a tide off the Lebanese shore, fired its 16-inch shells into various villages in the mountains, killing who knows how many. One of those shells fell through the roof of your father's dream house, incinerating everything. The structure remained standing for the most part, roofless, but still standing. Nothing inside was unharmed. The birds, the birds were roasted alive. After its murderous foray into Lebanese politics, the New Jersey was retired, the last of its time. The shell that destroyed your home might have been the last 16-incher to be fired. Don't you feel special? The Americans? A man drove a truck full of explosives into the U.S. barracks just outside of Beirut, killing 241 young Marines. Reagan withdrew all his forces, washing his hands of irrational Lebanon, calling the Lebanese terrorists, terrorists, terrorists that kill innocent peacekeepers. Why couldn't they fight fairly like decent people, using, using battleships, fighter jets, shock and all? Your mother would phone you in your small apartment in San Francisco. Your father was devastated, she told you. He didn't know what to do anymore. The house was more than his pride and joy, she explained. The house was him and he was the house. The battleship destroyed him. He had no idea where he was anymore. He tried to be stoic. He was a man's man after all. He'd tell her that they would build another house, maybe buy an apartment in Beirut or start anew and move to Paris. But she had caught him surreptitiously weeping on more than one occasion, whenever he thought no one was watching. She wished you were there to comfort him, but what could you do? What could you do? You were in graduate school. You had to get another degree in order to become a productive member of an evil society. You gobbled up hamburgers and quenched your thirst with coke. You dove into gay sex clubs every night. You were assimilating for crying out loud. You did not wish to remain an outsider in your adopted country. How could you explain to your father that you were not coming back, that you were choosing to become a citizen of the country that destroyed his dream with a single 16-inch shell? Which side were you on? You would try to become an American, become one with people who would rather see your family dead. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, that is, in my opinion, one of the most um, effectively moving and hardest to read passages in the whole novel. Uh, so I really appreciate you you sharing that you know it just sort of makes me think in terms of the novel about how traumas in the past of the, the viewpoint characters both mina and the writer the way that they're like triggered and echoed and what's going on in the camps in um in um 
in Lesbos. And, you know, it's just, to me, it's like, it's just, it's so evocative of the way that like memory and trauma work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and w- one of the things that I noticed most in that passage is the relationship of the humans and the birds and the ways that you, um, that there's other places in the novel, like with the orangutan, um, where it's like the, the relationships between marginalized humans and non-human animals and these sort of more than human feelings. It's like, it's really, um, I think, one of the emotional hearts of, of the work. And th- this scene in particular really made me think of um, Olivier Messiaen's um, uh, Quartet for the End of Time, uh, which was, a, he, he wrote as a POW in World War II and was inspired by hearing bird songs, you know? So it's just like, anyway, it's like, if you have anything more that you would like to say about that particular reading, I, I do see we have some questions in the in the, the chat, but anything that you would like to say is kind of a, um, to 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 just continue the thoughts that you were sharing with us from that passage. Well, it's it's fascinating again the the way you put it that the history of sort of marginalized people and non-humans, shall we say, uh, because primarily the two things that you mentioned, the birds and the orangutan, were <laughs> sort of real. Uh, there are many imagined things in the novel, and but the, the, the birds of the house were real, and they were destroyed by New Jersey, and, and that's the, the orangutan is real. Mina exists. The, Mina, the orangutan, exists in Indonesia. And I never met her, but when I was in the jungle in Indonesia, the guide kept taking me on different paths to avoid Mina, and that's when I realized again. It, I realized that, uh, and I tried to tell the guy, oh, but my character's name is Mina. We must meet Mina. And he'd go, she'd beat you up. So, yeah. Wow. Thank, thank you for, for that. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to like start taking some questions oh, from, from the chat. We've got about half an hour left in the program and there's enough questions here to keep us going for that long for sure. Uh, the first um, uh, question is from Katie, who says, I'm not sure how involved authors are with cover design, but I wanted to ask about the Arabic calligraphy on it. I didn't recognize the leaves were made from script until halfway through my reading, but once I noticed that I couldn't unsee it. What does it say? Oh, well, she could also look at the script because it's translated into English. Oh. Uh, the the It's... An Arabic script, uh, Iranian script, but the stems are in English. Uh, ah, okay. And it says I hadn't noticed that myself, but there they are. Yeah, in in English it says no nations, no borders, and it says the same thing in Arabic and in Persian. Did wow. I have something to do with the thing? Uh, the only thing I had to do was with that. Um, the first. Uh, the first attempt at it had exactly the same thing, except that the script was meaningless. Uh, or I think it was in Persian, which I could not read. So I, I had no idea what it was. Uh, and I found that a little bit off-putting because if I couldn't read it, uh, it could have been, you know, anything. Uh, and I didn't like the idea of putting it on, like making it exotic. Uh, but 
I, I thought it looked nice and I asked if we could do a design that said something as opposed to that we don't know that we actually know what it says. Uh, and we came up with no nations, no borders. So it's in Arabic, Iranian, and the stems are in English. I wanted more, but yeah, three was enough. That's what <laughs> I wanted like, you know, 50 languages. Can we do it? <laughs> Cool. Um, okay, well, this next question is from Chloe. Um, uh, there's a professor at Mills, Rebecca Edwards, who has a class called Queer Quests this semester, and some of uh, Rebecca's students are, are with us today. So this is from Chloe, who's in that class. I was wondering if there was any particular reason why you chose an orangutan to be uh, the one who Mina named herself after. That was my favorite scene in the novel, and it made me tear up. Well, because that actually happened. I mean, of course, it happened differently. And, and uh, like I said, I was having some trouble uh, in with the novel and I wasn't doing it right and stuff. But, you know, Mina was beginning to move into the novel. Uh, and I had, like I said, some issues with, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? How is it going to work? The the writer Olga Tokarczuk, I was interviewing her, and, and she talks about you know this thing that where the world offers a helping hand to a writer who's actually working, uh, and I I I think it's true. So I was um, in the jungle in Sumatra. I was by myself, and my whole thing was to see. Um, orangutans and I did you know it was really amazing and I was all by myself with a guide we were taking all these walks through the jungle and yes I was bitten by leeches and it was a lot of fun uh, and then he tells me the story of you know that we can't go this way because of Mina and you know, it's like, oh, Mina, Mina, Mina. I kept telling him Mina is, is the title of you know is the character's name and 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 he goes, okay, you know, but apparently he tells me the story of Mina, the orangutan, which she was uh, caught by, I can't think of the word right now. What do you call the poachers? Poachers. Uh, and apparently she was tortured you know, as a young orangutan. Uh, and she was rescued and taken to the orangutan sanctuary. Uh, and then released into the jungle. But when in the sanctuary, she was able to be okay with women, but she would attack men because those were the, you know, men were the uh, well, their species <laughs> who tortured her. Uh, so I was right away, I was standing in, in the middle of the jungle and I'm thinking, Mina, in my character, and if Mina was to come at my character, would she attack her? Uh, and everything fell into place. I mean, it, I, I remember, uh, I mean, I sort of described Mina coming into her own in, in the jungle, but it was actually also me coming into my novel in the jungle. When he told me the story and it was like, oh my God, everything 
makes perfect sense now. And this, you know, the novel was like a piece of cake afterwards. That's, that's a really, so really my, my, oh. my line for that is that, uh, you know, you get when you're when I'm writing and I call it in the zone or whatever, things happen that that just work. And I say that I don't believe in God, but I believe in her hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I have an analogous sense myself of like when it's like something feels like you're really alive with a with a thought. It's just like the world has this way of saying, yes, you know, look, yeah, you know, exactly. it's like here, it's like exactly right. So it's like, it's like a little bit of, you know, a little bit of breadcrumb in the maze where you're like, all right, on the right path, this is happening. Yep. Um, we've got some more uh, questions in the chat here uh, from some of uh, Rebecca Edwards' students who couldn't be here tonight. They sent in questions. And one of them just says, there are so many love stories uh, in this novel. Um, and also like struck by all the different kinds of chosen family. And like, what is it? It's like, tell us something about love stories and chosen family in the midst of being a refugee, trauma, being in between, um, queer kinship. It's like, how does, how do those themes work in your novel for the broken situations that the characters find themselves in? Well, uh, Let's just say, obviously, it is extremely important to me. Uh, I come from a very close family. Uh, and that has, uh, it's like at least my uh, nuclear family, as in my mom, my dad, and my two sisters, who have basically loved me and supported me in spite of all my craziness. Um, completely. Uh, so I've had that, but I also uh, am a queer man and we make our families. This is one of the first things that I realize is that we make our families. Uh, and I mean, I'm not advocating it to, to people, but it is one of the more interesting things that happens when you get disowned by your family, how you, you know, how, whether it's the world or providence or your needs or whatever, where another, you make another family. So I was interested in the whole thing of, you know, when refugees have to leave home and, you know, how do they form families? And I w wanted to show it in terms of, uh, you know, like other immigrants and stuff. And it was extremely important to me, extremely important that I show that uh, Nina was loved. Uh, it, I, you know, I could go, like, a lot of it was post facto, but I, that for me, I saw her as a very loving person, uh, that her relationship with Francine was, was almost ideal. Her relationship with her brother was almost ideal. But more importantly, that she was able to love the writer in all his neurosis. Uh, and, and yeah, that, that to me was, it was a biggie. Like, how do we form uh, relationships? How do we form, whenever, when you lose everything, what remains and what can be rebuilt is relationships. Yeah, that's, that's a good insight. Thank you. Um, 
We have another question from Rebecca, who says, in an interview, you mentioned uh, Fer uh, Fernando Pessoa, and uh, would you talk about heteronyms and whether this is a useful way for thinking about Mina? I don't know if it's a useful way to think about Mina. I think it's amazing, the way to think about life. Uh, I'm a big, 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 big fan of Pessoa. Uh, briefly, for those who do not know, Fernando Pessoa is a Portuguese uh, poet, um, lived in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he was, to put it mildly, uh, fucked up. Um, and he had a, a very, very, very rich internal life. Uh, not so good external life. Um, but internally, uh, he was so amazing that he started creating these what he called heteronyms. Uh, or, you know, in modern day terms, they would probably be called personalities, but they, he, he, he was conscious of them all. So it wasn't a dissociative disorder. But he created uh, 72 distinct personalities, and he wrote under each and each one of them had a full history and who they were created a different writing style. You could probably say uh, that the four greatest Portuguese poets are all Fernando Pessoa. Uh, he wrote under, you know, the, the four great ones are truly astounding. But what was amazing is that these four poets critiqued each other. Uh, they wrote intros to each other's works. Uh, he created critics to critique the critics. He created people so that they could have interactions with. He, he just created this whole internal world uh, that, that was, you know, again, just astounding. For me, for somebody like me who you know, my social life is almost non-existent. I'm at home most of the time, et cetera. That to, to be able to say that I have a rich life is because of my, you know, imagination. But I'm also interested because, you know, it's like in various situations, I am different people and we all are. Yet we always think of ourselves as one thing. You know, like uh, we, we always say, oh, you know, he's generous. Well, he could be generous at one point and under different circumstances, he wouldn't be, you know, so that we are all heteronyms in different aspects of ourselves. Uh, and I actually think that's a really healthy way of looking at life as opposed to, you know, I mean, my favorite is everybody these days. I, I jokingly say that introvert is the new black. Everybody claims to be to be an introvert, you know. And the truth of the matter is that you know we're all introverts at times, extroverts at others, you know. Various I and mean, again, it's just different situations. Nobody is one thing. Yeah, yeah the way you're talking about heteronyms, and I, you know, I, I didn't know, um, you know, the soa. So it's like thank you for 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 telling me that, but the, the way you're talking about the heteronyms and the rich interior life really reminds me of, I'm gonna forget the character's name, but the 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 character in your book, um, An Unnecessary Woman. It's like, that is so much her her world. It's like that she's a translator who 
really not interested in publishing her translations, you know, that she's just interested in her relationship with literature and her own interior life. And it's like, to me, it's like, it's a novel where many things don't happen. You know, it's a very in interior internal dialogue kind of kind of novel. But it's like, I, I think it, you know, may, maybe it's my favorite of, of all of your novels. I just love inhabiting that that world that she is in and then understanding her relationship with, with literature through her eyes. No, her favorite writer is Fernando Pessoa. Uh, there you go. So all like, right. She's based on Fernando Pessoa. Like, you know, the, the we know Fernando Pessoa because after he died, they found this whole trunk full of these notes and Mitch made one of the great books of our time, the book of Disquiet. I don't know whether you know, like the Walter Benjamin, Benjamin where they he nobody found the, the, the trunk. Well, with Pessoa, they found the trunk. So I always thought is what if they never found the trunk? Would we, would, would his life had been worth it? Mm. You know, so that was to the him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, certainly to him. Uh, um, all right. Well, moving on, uh, Rebecca corrects me and says that was actually a question from a student that she was posting on the student's <laughs> behalf. Um, but let's carry on. This is uh, from Sage, who was also in Rebecca Edwards' class. This is in the book. Francine says, quote, insanity is the insistence on meaning. I wanted to ask what this meant to Mr. Alamadeen. Is sanity then the insistence that nothing has meaning? Meaning, you know, do you agree or disagree with that? I, uh, I wouldn't, one doesn't uh, lead to the other, but I wouldn't say no. The, the, let's say insanity is the insistence of meaning, and it is one of man's greatest sort of needs is to explain things and, you know, give meaning to things that happen. And, you know, is sanity uh is the insistence on that the lack of no meaning let's just say ever since i started believing that shit happens i've had a much more well-adjusted life that it's not my fault that you know that uh putin invades ukraine it is not my fault no you know shit happens that is outside of of you know like there's a reason for this. No, there, you know, most times there's no reason. Um, another question from Iris. Uh, I'm curious uh, uh, as to during the process of writing the book, what made you decide uh, that the format and the ways the chapters are broken up in the novel was the format that you wanted the story to be told in? Well, a lot of it is instinct. You know, a, a lot of it is instinct, but I was also interested in, uh, I mean, I had interviewed, God, I don't know, maybe somewhere between 200 and 500 people. You know, uh, I had all these stories I wanted to tell. Um, and I, of course, made up stories that I wanted to tell. So how do you do that? How do you put all that in, into something and, and make it work? But I was always so interested in the idea of, you know, I've always been interested in the idea of layering, of, of having this one story and having all these things around it. Um, I, it's like, it's, I always say it's like a tuning fork that if I 
ding the story, this story must vibrate on this side. So I was always interested in that. And the, the way that this book is structured uh, is, is a lot about this would, you know, hitting this stone would make this story go right and this, so that it is built up in such a way that they may not appear to be connected, but they do reference each other and they make each other work. Thank, thank you for that. Um, this is from Jessica, uh, another student in, in Rebecca Edwards' class. Uh, you mentioned your deep connection to Mina uh, and you sometimes have conversations with her. I'm curious how that impacts your writing process. Uh, and also thank you so much for this talk and for reading from your novel. Oh, thank you for listening. Uh, well, I mean, again, it's it's, difficult to talk about my writing process without sounding like a completely insane person. Uh, but it's actually, it's, it's a lot, many things change, but one of the main things that changed with, it started with an unnecessary woman where I started seeing the character that I'm writing. Uh, Almost everything I've ever written has been in first person. And how I do it is I usually inhabit the character. Uh, and in many ways with an unnecessary woman, I started inhabiting it really well. That, you know, I started feeling like I was a 72 year old woman. Uh, that all of a sudden I started being able to see the characters like that I am both the character and I can see the character next to me. And when I started being able to see the character next to me, it, it, it became easier to define who they are that is you know, separate than me. So with Mina, uh, I mean, I saw her, I saw the glasses that she wore, I, I saw the clothes that she wore, you know, brown corduroys, why? I have no idea. Uh, it, it, yeah, a lot of it was was it became easy to 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 see it, and and it's funny because again, there's the character of the writer who's sort of based on me, and then there's Mina who's sort of somewhat based on me and me, and is somewhat based on you, but I'm not gonna say what, <laughs> you know, uh, but that I am sort of all the characters in the book and I am none of the characters in the book. How does that writing work? I really don't know. I, you know, I sit down to write and most of the time when I'm writing, I'm worried about, can I make, you know, the sentence work? Um, then in the end, you look at it and does it work? Yes. Does it not work? You throw it out. Good. Um, we have a follow-up question from Katie who asked you the question about the cover art. Mm -hmm. um, uh, who just says, well, to follow up then, did you write that text? Uh, no nations, no war, uh, no, no borders, no nations is a, a slogan that was a graffiti right, out, right on the wall of Moria, the camp. Um, so there's all these, I try to describe it. If you, if you go online and check Moria camp and go to the images, you might see it. Um, so there's these, uh, I don't know what uh, concrete sort of blocks, and then above them there's these 
concertina razor wire so that as you know it looks like a jail but then somebody came and stenciled in big red you know no nations no borders no nations uh, and it's still there it's still there after all this time it's still there uh, and so I, I love that yes I chose that but you know it, it wasn't that difficult to choose there to be found um so the um the remainder of the comments in the chat are more comments it's like if people have any uh any questions last questions that you'd like to get in we've got just a few more minutes uh, of time tonight but um robbie i don't know if you're able to see the chat right now but people are saying like you know uh, kirsten says what a wonderful story that was about um Mina the orangutan. Chloe says, um, I'm so glad Mina was saved and taken to a loving place. Hearing how you interwove your own experience with Mina into the novel makes it even more amazing. Thank you. Um, uh, Sage says that was some great life advice about, um, I think about the heteronyms. Um, uh, and uh, Katie says, yes, yeah, sanity is is overrated. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, um, and so we've got we've got two questions that we can end on. Sage has a follow up. What does no borders, no nations mean for you in the context of this story? Well, it, it's in the context of life. It's one of the most interesting thing to me is how ingrained we are uh, about, you know, how na ingrained nationalism is. It, it's uh i consider nationalism almost to be evil in and of itself uh but that this whole sort of invention of what a nation is and uh what borders are uh is is fascinating that you know if you were born here you get this and you get to believe certain beliefs but if you were born there you have different beliefs and they become like these major major beliefs uh, and I find that you know fascinating that that we could hate someone and kill them and because they are of a different nation and it's one of the few things remaining where you know almost everybody still considers nationalism to be uh, a highly valued char character of, of people and in uh i think it's the opposite that you know uh, it's it's yeah it's the refuge refuge of cowards basically you know oh, oh. Uh, and you know john lennon was just way too early <laughs> mm -hmm. uh yeah. so yes for me it's uh it, it you know again i I have lots of troubles with many identities and most identities, really, uh, because they tend to separate us. Yeah. And I know we need them because we need to belong and all that kind of stuff. But I find it fascinating. And I've always said that, that, you know, if you were born in, in, into a sort of Muslim family, you have a certain set of beliefs and they become real. And if you're born into a Christian family, you have this certain set of beliefs. But you know, they become real. And it's like, what if you were just, you know, they mistake you at the hospital and put you here, you'd have a completely different belief system. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, totally hear that. It's like, you know, identity, I think of identity as almost like, you know, putting a flag in the ground someplace, you know, it's like, it's like, it is totally related to questions of nationalism. And it's like, and whatever identity you've got, it's like, there's somebody who will say like, no, actually, that's my identity, and you don't belong here. And then the war starts. So there you go. Uh, We've got a few more questions. Uh, This one from... um, from Mimi K uh, asking, have you started a new book or are you thinking about one? Uh, I have had many starts. You know, I, I'm thinking about one. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, since I've had many starts, I'm not sure this is the one that is going to make it. It's, I mean, I've always said this, that I, the books that make it are the one that I obsess about for a long, long time, because writing a book takes so long. Um, so usually I, I obsess about something I'm interested, and then it goes away. You know, I'm upset, I'm, I'm interested, it goes away. I'm hoping this is the one, but I can't be sure. You're not going to give us a little, a little, little teaspoon of a taste of what maybe the next book is? Well, I mean, I could give you, but it might not be. But it might maybe, not be the book, right? But. Yes, like, like maybe right now, I'm. It's it's going to be about self help in in America, and I'm having a character sort of similar to Werner Erhard fall in love with somebody similar to a guru, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll keep my eye out for that. I, I will just say I love the way Wrong into the Telescope ends with like. The, the writer basically telling us or Mina telling us about all of the things that the writer was going to write, but didn't write. So we get to see all of the, oh, I, the yeah. writer didn't, didn't write. Yeah. Uh, um, all right. Well, we're coming to a close to our time available to us. Uh, a few parting shots. Katie says, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight so much, especially when you don't feel well. Toby gives you the, Fist up, yes, nationalism, heteronormativity, capitalism make us evil. Uh, Chloe says, thank you so much for this conversation, for answering all of our questions, Robbie. Thanking me and the ASL interpreters. Um, um, uh, We've got another question here from Chandra Laborde. Haven't read the book, but will soon. A question is, what is the significance of the novel taking place in Lesbos in relation with having Mina have a contemporary lesbian identity? Oh, I mean, the the novel took place in Lesbos because that was where the disaster was in 2016. I mean, I was interested, as was the world, really, that the distance between coast of Turkey and Lesbos was less than maybe, you know, 45 minutes by boat. And they were drowning insane, not by insane numbers. And I was, you know, so there was this big catastrophe in, in 2015, 2016, and it's still Lesbos is still where the majority of people who want to go to uh, Europe end up, and it's because it's the easternmost place where uh, the European Union, and so that's it's in Lesbos, and the Moria camp has become infamous because. 
And it just happened that Lesbos is also where uh, Sappho was. I am much more to say there. And Chandra, maybe we can follow up on that um, off offline. Um, uh, well, it is, I'll say, a, about that time. Um, um, one second. Someone's added to my script here. Let's find my, my place. Um, all right, so we are coming to um, a close for our time. Thank you, Robbie, uh, for sharing everything with us tonight. I, you know, the, the, the chat was very lively. I, I know that your words uh, both today and in, in the novel have really moved people. Um, so again, thank you for showing up even when you're not feeling well and being here with us tonight. Uh, a reminder to everyone that uh, to please check the Mills College Performing Arts webpage for upcoming speaker series and WAT events and to subscribe to the WATV podcast and other audio formats. Details are in the chat. Please mark your calendars for two weeks from yesterday, April 13th, for the final speaker series event, Volatile Contexts, Identity, Technology, and Politics in a Moment of Danger with Chelsea Manning, uh, which will be both a live on-campus event at Lesser Hall, as well as live streamed um, uh, through Mills Performing Arts. I'd uh, just like to say thank you. Uh, thank you to the whole Trans Study Speakers series, and we are the Voices crew, um, Michael and Travis, our ASL interpreters tonight, uh, WATV staff members, Michelle Zambrano and Joshua Zuninga. Uh, project director Kirsten Saxton, director of Mills Performing Arts, and our tech host today, uh, Alexander Zinzarian, my assistant, Samantha Bunkiao, uh, who keeps all the plates spinning on the ends of all of my sticks. And most of all, thank you, Robbie, and thank you, audience, for being here tonight. See you next time. That's it for this episode on WATV Radio. We appreciate you joining us and listening in. Have any questions about this podcast, any of our guests, or have topics that you'd like for us to explore for future programming? Feel free to reach us on our socials. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at WATV underscore Oak. And on Facebook, we're at WATV dot Oak.